This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com moment. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now. So listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. Hi, I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And we're the hosts of She Does, a series of audio documentaries that are part biography, part conversation, and completely about women working in media. Every other week, we ask writers, filmmakers, photographers, technologists, among many other creative outlets, what makes them tick. We get personal, because realizing the successful person sitting in front of you was once out of ideas or completely lost. You know, the moments they leave out of their bio. Can be just what you need to lift you up and out of a creative crisis. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, what have you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is the moment of Brian Koppelman. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I just saw that happen in person. Why? Uh, everyone, please uh, don't send any submissions to me through Twitter or through email. I will not read them. If you send me a script, I will not read them. Actually, no, I take that back. I will read them. You can send me as many scripts as you want, but only if they're really long. I only will read 300-page screenplays. <laughs> I love that your impression of me makes me sound like uh, a long Isle, a more Long Island Lou Reed. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, you're listening to the moment. And uh, just uh, please, everyone, send me as many scripts, write, any writing samples. Even if your children just <laughs> scribble something on a piece of paper, on a piece of construction paper, just send it to me because I want to read all of it. Um, this uh, first time, first time, long time, isn't that what they say in sports? Sure, radio? that's what I am here. Uh, that's great. Well, he- here's the thing: <laughs> today's guest is Jerry O'Connell, who has decided that I talk like, um, I guess, like yeah, like Lou Reed, like well, I'm from the South Shore I, of Long. Well, Only me- a New York City kid, by the way, would pick up on the fact that I have a slight Long Island accent. Well, l- let me just say a couple things. Um, I, I have never gotten in touch with you through... Actually, I have gotten in touch with you so, through social media. I didn't have your phone number, so I, I direct messaged you. But when I said I was doing this with you, I was my wife is working on a show, and one of the writers said, oh, man, he is the nicest guy in the world. And I said, oh, 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 do, you, oh do you know Koppelman? And he went, no, I had a question for him, writing-wise, and I hit him up on Twitter and he answered me right back, and we've had like a conversation since then. You do give like you do give out free advice to people in the industry and stuff. I mean, you I are like a mentor. I think it's worth exactly um, what it costs. Yeah. And you know, I I really never knew that about you, and I was really taken aback. I mean, it's 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 borderline charitable what you do, and so I under then I understood why you were like, please, no one send me submissions. I can't take it because you're because you know what, you're a nice guy, and you give you and you give people an inch, and you know and you know the mile is coming. Well, it's also it's because because there's a, a fine like I I it's really great, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's great to be able to help people or steer them, but then crazy is always right around the oh, corner. Man. And you know, it's so funny. My next question would love to be like, what's the craziest thing you've written? But I don't want to anger anyone who sent it to you. Oh, like the craziest thing I've read? You mean? Yeah, like the craziest thing that you've read that you've been sent. And I, I just don't want someone waiting Dude, outside of the, uh, I, out of I, the out of, outside of the recording studio here being like, you make fun of my script. Why you do that? It's a special script to me. Why you think? Why you make fun of it? You said you would produce it, Mr. Koppelman. You said you and Levine would put on the showtime. Why you do this to me? You ruined my career. Now you die. Jerry, I got one. I got like you're you're you know, you here's what's great, because you're insulated, because you've been a movie star and famous for huge, so long huge. that you're you can't no one they can't reach you with that shit. But you don't know how I mean, honestly, that's tame. What you just did is tame. But that's why so I just try to say, look, don't uh you know, don't let's not put each other in the position where we're gonna have to sort of like um me ignoring you or saying no. Um I don't know, you know what it is? I wanted mentors so badly when I was young. I'm sure you, I mean, you must have found them along the way. Mentors. You know, I, I, I had some weird mentors. Uh, I did a television show right out of college. It was a low-budget, science fiction, hour-long show. And this is super random, what I'm going to say. There was a guy named Richard Compton who was the line producer, not the line producer, the directing producer. For those who don't know at home, that is the director 
who directs basically every other episode of the season and helps the guest directors come in. He he kind of a little bit sets the tone for the show from a directorial stamp standpoint. He was a guy who worked on Miami Vice. He was sort of like in the in the in, in, at the end of his career. He had worked on Miami Vice. He had worked on classic television. And, you know, now he was sort of mentoring on this sort of low-budget science fiction show. And he really taught me a lot about um, just being professional on a television set. Just, you know, what to do, what not to do. And not just basic things like be on time. Just like, I mean, this is so insane, but like, you know, this is once again a low-budget show. So we'd be shooting in a crowd of people or in a public place. And he'd say, hey, find the camera in this scene. If if you can't see us, we're not going to be able to see you in the scene, and we don't have time to do two well, takes. Well, you'd been acting already for like ten years. That was a really when you kind of put that stuff together. Well, you know, um, that's awesome. It, it, technically, he really helped me out, and um, he really made me fall in love with sort of this machine that the United States does the best, which is hour long television. And um, he was just an old school. He was just a soldier. He was he was a, he was a sergeant. And uh, he's he's sadly passed now. I, I went to his funeral and everything, and he's uh, got, got a lovely wife and uh, and a son. And um, uh, he was he was a real mentor. It's so random that I say that. Look, it's not as sexy as saying like, you know, I did a play here in New York with Alan Rickman and getting to watch him every night. And and that that is the truth. Getting to watch him every night in a of play course. is you just you learn immense things about acting and everything. But that what I just gave you was the unsexy answer. But you know. We're on no, the moment. No, but so. it's, listen, you forget the sexy answers you can give to the cool comedians and to Howard. <laughs> who, you know, and Howard's That's done the Howard's definitive. That's a Howard Stern reference. Howard's all certainly done the definitive interviews with you. God, but, I went to the Mets game last night. I mean, I know we're playing this a couple days later, and it's hopefully fun. they've they've won the World Series at this point. But I went to the Mets game last night, and you know, it's in Queens, it's in Flushing. I got so many Papa Bowies, it's not even funny. And I guess what Robert Robert A. Bowie was. Um, in City Field at the time, because I, uh, afterwards going on social media, I saw it. But man, I, I'm a frequent guest on Howard Stern's show, and I get so many Baba Booies. It's crazy. Well, you know, I got to listen. I, I'm going to say I always tell everybody, ignore, don't don't listen to the critics. And I'll say the last week, I got two emails from people telling me to, that I should talk less on the show. But um, that's so funny. So do you so you read those comments? I read every comment that somebody Hilarious. says. No, wow, but you I, are so, you I don't are so care. nice. You have so many feelings. You really are a really nice guy. I, well, I didn't. I wasn't a child star, so I was able to develop those things. <laughs> I was able to develop feelings. Throw those out. You shouldn't. Even, you should block them all. No, I like it. But this is what I was saying. But no, what I say is, look, you you can, and I feel this. I'll read it. I'll absorb it. But um, people, the, the truth is, for every one of those letters, I get twenty five letters from some from people asking me to that they listen to the show because they want me to talk to talk to the guest. And I have to, what I would tell a guest is like, ignore that. You do this thing for yourself. So this is the time you should turn it off if you don't want. Well, you're going to talk a little bit around me because I have some questions. How did you feel about Grantland folding up? Bad. But we'll talk about that in a second. I'll, I'll answer anything you want. We can do, we'll, we'll have a conversation, which is what that this was show funny, is. That was a funny time around your podcast. You were like, um, <clears throat> I want to thank everyone at Grantland, but we're no longer a part of uh, the Grantland family. They were wonderful to us. Uh, anyway, we're here at Slate. It's a wonderful place to be. I want to thank everyone here. Um, we're in a lovely uh, situation. Um, Where do you walk around no listening one... to the show? Is it do you work out when you're listening? Because um, you obviously listen too closely. In LA, I have I, I live in the suburbs, so I have a commute, and that's when I listen to a lot of my podcasts. Right. I don't want you to get jealous or upset, but you're not the only podcast I listen to. Uh, in New York, I walk a lot, and I listen there. And um, yeah, which, at, which are the other ones the you listen to? Well, I don't want you to get upset, but uh, I I love Mark Marin. Why would I be upset? I was on that show. I love um, that show. I, I, I know you were. My buddy Jay Moore, I really like his podcast. He got me started in podcasting. Really? really? That yes. I did not know. Jay put me on twice, and that's what started me thinking I could do this. You know, uh, I, I, I really like, um, I, I, I really, I listen to Howard a lot. Um, I listen to Joe Rogan. I, I have, a, I have yeah, an eclectic Rogan's taste, great. you know. I listen to a lot of NPR stuff. You know what? You're going to get really upset with me. I was not into the serial story. Listen, I like the serial it story a lot. It moved too slowly for me. The music every like two seconds really annoyed me. I'm a terrible person because I listened to like the first 30 seconds and I was like, he did it. And I couldn't get that out of my head. And that's terrible of me because it's why I'm not in any way going to be a judge or anything like that because he was guilty until proven guiltier. It was just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I could not listen to the serial well, Yeah, podcast. I love the Saturday Night Live, the final Saturday Night Live <laughs> right. thing. In it because, I mean... I, 
I, too, uh, am not a judge. But if I were a judge, that guy would be in jail for the rest of his life. I just, you know, I do watch those datelines in those 48 hours, and I watch them with my wife. And it's just, I'm really riveted by those couples, like, murdering each other. And, like, I don't know why my wife and I do it to each other. It's crazy. I mean, we had another funny joke. My wife and I went on vacation. And those 48 hours and datelines always open up on, like, a vacation with a couple and I kept, we would like go for a walk on the beach in this, in this <laughs> hotel we were staying at. And I kept saying in like an, an announcer voice, what started off as a romantic walk on the beach ended <laughs> in murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you, we, we have something else in common. I went to law school for a year. I'm a 2L. Oh, that's great. Where'd you go? I went to Southwestern in Los Angeles, which is sort of the equivalent of Hunter <laughs> in LA. I want to hear about that. And film school, you actually went to, I, right? Th- th- that, I, that I graduated from. I, by the way, I know graduated is not the right word. Yeah. I say it as a joke. Um, yeah, I, 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 I went to NYU. But, um, man, you went that, to NYU film? Yeah, I went to Tisch. Um, I didn't um, make a movie. I was more in the dramatic writing department. You know, you have to fund your own movies, and this is back in the day of film. You, as a whippersnapper, don't remember this, um, but you used to have to buy film and process it and, like, pay for it and I, all that sort of no, stuff. No, I, I know all about that because... Uh, I know all about that because I have uh, Project Greenlight this year, where now, they really talk about the difference between film and digital. Well, now you kids today just make all your movies on your iPhone, and you just, you just zap yeah. it out to the world, you know? So I want to go back to your, because it's so interesting to me, Jerry, your, and because we've heard you on Stern so many times, and people know a lot of the crazy stories about you, because Howard's the best interviewer in the world, and gets a lot of that stuff out. But I was thinking about this today, and because Stand By Me was so important to people and is so important to people in such a deep way. And because it it's a movie that kind of explains what childhood feels like, you've been in people's consciousness and in their subconscious for like a long time. Like, when did you start to realize the, the kind of place that that movie had for people? And then as sort of a grown-up, how rooted people are in that story? I, I mean, for those listening, I was in Stand By Me. I played Vern Tessio in Stand By Me, or if you want to put it... um Simply, I was the... The fat kid. <laughs> I was the husky kid, uh, Brian. You, you were the fat kid. Yeah, hey, whoa, whoa, husky, husky. He was just, I mean, don't, like, somebody pull up, get get your boy in the room there to pull up a photo and look at it. I was not fat, okay? <laughs> you know fat kids. Like, and you know, I wanted to say something else also. <laughs> this really upsets my mom, by the way. When you say fat today, like, you know, obesity is a real problem in this country. That's where your mind goes to. That is what I was not. Yes, I drank a lot of soda. Yes, I did. But I was I was a thick kid. I was not I was it was like all there. Like you would say like, "Oh, that's a that's a healthy kid." You wouldn't have said he was fat. You are 6 foot 3. <laughs> great looking. Uh married to one of the prettiest women in the world. Uh just date date, you know, if they're if the phrase modelize if, if fat affected as offended you, then modelizer really would. But I mean, you certainly were the whole thing, modelizer and um it's still the 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 arrows from when you were a kid. It's still like look at you. It still bugs you. No, I'm I'm totally joking. It doesn't bother no, you're me. You're not at totally all. joking. Totally... You're kind of joking. Um, you're mostly joking. No, okay. Back to back to answer your question. I um a couple times. Um, it's really funny. I grew up in Manhattan. Um, what high school did you go to? I went to professional children's school on 60th between 9th and 10th. Um, I I grew up in this area. I, I grew up uh, for the we're in sort of the West Village, but I grew up in Chelsea. And I was going to junior high school in Chelsea on 20th between 9th and 10th when I got and did Stand By Me. And did not have a showbiz family. Mom was a teacher. Dad was mid-level advertising guy. And we shot Stand By Me in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. And I came back to, we did it over the summer, and I came back to go into, into junior high. And my father, who's British, went, um, said, right, um, I'm sure you had a lot of fun making that movie. Don't tell anyone you are in a movie because um, it's never going to be released. No one will ever see this movie. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you know, I, I, I work with people who are constantly making small movies and they just never, they never come out. Just don't go around telling people you're in a movie because they don't come out. Like, I, I really remember this. He went, enjoy what the process was. And that's it. And... I really didn't even think about the movie after that. I mean, it was over. And also, you're a kid. It's like, all right, well, that was that. And, you know, my parents weren't showbiz parents, so we didn't know anything, you know? So the movie came out 
I mean, I, this is like an insane story. My grandparents were with me when I made the movie because both my parents worked. The movie came out. There was no premiere or anything. I went to go see it on the Upper East Side next to Alexander's. Do you remember that that department store? There was a theater on the Upper East Side, I think on Madison or wherever, up, up where Alexander's was. And I went with my grandparents because they were there for the filming. And we went to go see it. And we paid to go in. We watched the movie. We walked out. And the lady selling the tickets went, um, hey, were you in that movie? And I said, uh, and my grandfather went, yeah, he was, we were in it. We were, um, uh, we were there for the shooting. It was, it was amazing. Uh, it's so great to see the final product. And she went, that was a good movie, man. That was a really good movie. And I was like, oh, thanks. And she was like, no, I, that, I, I gotta tell you, that was a really touching movie. And we were like, oh, thank you. And she went here. Uh, um, she said, stars don't have to pay. And she gave us our money back. So my grandfather, his big story about Stand By Me is awesome. they gave us the money back. You know, his big story before that was uh, the food on set was the, the lunches were amazing. Yeah. They put the spread out, the schmear. Then the second time I knew we were into something was I was in a Chinese restaurant on 6th Avenue with my parents at a place called Hunan Royal in the village. It's no longer there. Man, you're, I'm so sorry this is taking so long, this story. No, I'm, this, um, every part of this is good. <clears throat> and I was sitting at a table, and, you know, this is like the Chelsea, this is the West Village, 86, I guess, 1986. And I'm there with my parents, and there was a couple next to me, and they were saying, um, oh, my God, it was just amazing. I just, I couldn't believe it. And I was, like, eavesdropping a little bit. And they went, it's just, uh, Stand By Me is, it's the best movie I've seen in a really long time. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, they're talking about Stand By Me. I, I, I mean, I, 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 just, I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't believe I was in something that someone in Hunan Royal was, was talking about. Now, I got to tell you, right then and there, I didn't get, I didn't feel the effects of how successful it was because I was 12 when the movie came out. You know, those guys were older than me. They were a little more Hollywood. So, you know, kid actors tend to be... A little, you know, like Mickey Rooney was like, you know, 20 when he's playing a 12-year-old, you know. They're like, it's it's to get kids who are more mature, you know. It's like that It's like that Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers. Like oh, yeah, when they talk kid. about the hockey player. I was thinking, it's so funny. I was thinking about it in the la- yesterday. I know. The hockey player thing, how yeah. depending on, on when you were born, you'll get put in a certain hockey league. And they looked and all these people who became right. great hockey players who advanced, it was because they were actually bigger, and so they were selected because they were born in the first half of the year. It's an interesting book to read if you're if you're a parent and you want to put your kid, you want your kids to, you know, go into sports it, and stuff. It is. You're saying so. These guys were Will River. They and, were older. And Corey were older than you. They were when that movie came out. They were borderline like having sex. They were sexually active. You know, I mean, I was not. I was 12. So. It's so funny, like, my friends growing up wanted to know why I wasn't in Lost Boys. That was, like, their big question. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. This is, like, the first oh, time Oh, because Corey, I... Corey and Kiefer were there. Right. And I, I got to tell you, this is the first feeling of jealousy I had. I, I had never felt jealous in my life. And I remember walking out of the theater after seeing Lost Boys and being like, yeah, why wasn't I in Lost Boys? Like, why, why wasn't I? I? I deserve to be in Lost Boys. I'm, I'm just as good as those guys. But it really, so uh, what I'm trying to say is I didn't understand how important it was. When I went to college, when I went to film school at NYU, I became instantly popular. You know, I lived at home during college and that made me less popular. Also, my grandfather, God rest his soul, lived with us. It was like a whole family that lived with us in an apartment. And there was like no, it was no, it wasn't like I was in a dorm room, like, you know, having sex all the time and smoke and, and doing drugs. But when I went to college, I became popular because I was, as you say, the fat kid in Stand By Me. As don't I say, use, don't use fat. That's not. <laughs> that's say, not nice, Jerry. The the husky kid in Stand By Me. But but it it, it made me. This is going to make me sound shallow, but it. I don't want to say it became part of me, but I I enjoyed the attention it brought me. That's such an awful thing to say, you know. But it made me. It made me popular, and then I realized it wasn't until I went to college that I truly realized, like, wow, this movie's sticking around. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution and support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting Android Pay, Apple Pay, PayPal, Bitcoin, Venmo cards, and whatever's next, all with a single integration across all platforms. 
with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com moment. That's braintreepayments.com moment. Yeah, well, no, when you say that about the attention, I mean, of course it did. But what's so interesting about you, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, because that movie was so important to me. I saw it in that movie theater um, next to, that I don't think it's there anymore, next to P.J. Clark's, and the, you know, next to the original P.J. Clark's on like 3rd Avenue in the 60s. I think that's where I saw the movie for the first time. Um, and it was, I was in college, and it hit me so hard. Uh, I loved the, you know, I loved the novella. But it was originally a book before it was, I mean, it's amazing. It was a Stephen King book. It was a Stephen King novella in a, no, in a, in that also had Shawshank Redemption and, uh, apt pupil. pupil. Yeah. I mean, this is how incredible that it was a book of four short stories called different seasons written by Stephen King. One was apt pupil. One was Shawshank. One was a short story called the body, which later became stand by me. And, um, I don't, I don't know what the other I forget one was. the fourth one though. I know it. Um, uh, but I loved that book. And then I remember going to see it and it was Rob Reiner who directed the movie and what a sort of big deal. The whole thing was, I can't believe, cause it was Rob Reiner. I can't believe your family didn't think it would come out. It's not um, like Rob Reiner was making movies back then that didn't get released because Princess Bride. You no, know, but you got to understand this was before the only thing he Rob had done. done Spinal done, Tap and, and, and then, and, and, the, and sure the sure thing. thing. No, I know the Spinal Tap, the sure thing. It's a hell of a run. Spinal Tap, short thing, stand by me, Princess Bride. Misery. Misery, the firm. Harry, Harry met Sally. And then the firm in a row, like just in a row. Did he do the firm? I mean, um, I mean, A Few Good Men. A Few Not Good Men. A Few Good Men. Yeah, I mean, it's just in- incredible. Harry met Sally. No, Sidney Pollack is the firm. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. He, he, he was incredible. I do have to say, looking back on my memories of him directing the four of us, he was incredible. You know, the first two weeks we, we went to Eugene, Oregon. I didn't know these guys. They were Hollywood guys. He put... All of us in a room, including himself, for two weeks in a hotel room. And we just played games and memory games and goofed around and got to know each other and maybe rehearsed a scene, but just played games for two weeks. For two weeks. Didn't didn't rehearse anything. Then we'd go to locations and start to rehearse a little bit. And we pretty much rehearsed the whole film before we shot it. Right. And... I, I got to say, at night, he would take us to... I mean, this is going to show you how long ago it was. I remember we all went to go see cocoon because that had come out and you know he was our buddy you know i, I i'm i'm still very which, friendly with him i'm more which friendly he also directed he did not direct, oh, directed cocoon? Cocoon. ron howard oh, ron another howard, television right, star confused. oh yeah, yeah um, of course you know i'm i'm very friendly with 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 rob reiner i'm super friendly with his unsung silent partner i'm i feel a little uncomfortable even talking about him andy Scheiman. andrew Scheiman is a guy who was his right hand castle rock castle rock martin schaefer him, I mean, just, and very much responsible for that run and everything. And he is a, he's an old school guy that if I take a job or if I want a job, I call him up and ask his ad- advice on things. He's just a super smart guy and no, that's still, an, it, still, it, still kind of works, but doesn't really have to. He's, he's a, he's, he's a class act. He's just old school. No, that's a, an invaluable thing to have somebody like that. And he's like, he's a guy who came up with Albert Brooks and like through that whole stand up scene and just well, like the, like the stories are just incredible. Oh yeah. I can't, I'm no, I'm sure that you hear a lot of stories from people who work with them and who've made stuff. I had a lot of friends who made movies with them, um, or developed movies with them. And of course, you know, they were involved with Goodwill Hunting early and then that went right, right. Right. I've heard a lot of different perspectives on that whole right. thing. Right. You know, I didn't bring it up because of that, but you, I'm just remembering that. Right. Castle, so, okay, uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I hope I don't get sued for saying this. Castle Rock was involved with Goodwill Hunting before Miramax was. I believe that's the story. And then they were not. And Yeah, I mean, those guys have all told the story, I think, a bunch of times. Oh, have they? I, I'm saying Matt and, and Matt and Ben have definitely right. told, everyone's told sort of uh, versions of the of that story. But- this, when when you think back on, because famously, right, you've talked about this a bunch of times that in the shadow of that movie, it's funny hearing you talk about it now. Like you, you know, you're jumping over from sort of the movie you shot it when you were 12. It came out when you were what 13 or 14. No, I shot it when I was 11. Oh, so it came out when you were 12. Yeah. And it's crazy because those guys were all 14 and 15, and I'm 11. But you know, I was a big kid, so I looked, I looked their age. You know what I'm saying? You were husky. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, send as many scripts to Brian. Write to Brian. I'm going to give you his email. It's <laughs> no. So Brian Cop the man at Earthlink.net. Just send and, it right there. And so, but when you thought like. I don't know, I had this weird thought. I was thinking about this other Stephen King story about this, uh, the last rung on the ladder, which is about this this woman who kills herself and had written a letter to her her brother who tries to go trace their their steps. And it's got a stand by me, kind of a feel to it uh, in a way. But I was thinking about you, Will Wheaton, uh, Corey Feldman, and, and River Phoenix. And, you know, if you think about the direction of everybody's lives, all of you except Will, it seems like, had a lot of perilous sort of times out of, out of that and did you ever did you ever think that you'd have been better off having not all of you would have been better off having not had that experience not getting you know moonshot in a way you know we did um we did like a reunion um when the blu-ray came out i think columbia or whoever the movie is had us do a reunion and we did an interview with uh like good morning america or the today show or something and I can't answer for them, but it was totally depressing for me because River Phoenix is dead, you know? And it's just like, I mean, like, he just passed away. And he, he just, he, he uh, you know, it was, oh, man, I, I don't want to say it was preventable, but it was like, it was, he just died so young, you know? And um, But you think it was preventable. I, 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 I don't want to say that, you know? That's not for me to say. It's just, um... It was just, it's just terrible. You know, he was just such a young guy. He, he, he shouldn't have passed, passed, you know, he had a lot more to give, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, um, I have a weird thing where this is such a weird thing that I have, um, where every time I see an image of Brad Pitt, which is often, I think, man, you wouldn't be who you are if River was still alive. It's such a crazy thing. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, like, it's not a beef or anything that I have. I just think to myself, like, wow, like, I, 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 I shouldn't have even said that, but I mean, uh, you know what I mean. Well, what do you mean by that? I, I don't even know what I mean by that. I, I, God, yes, I'm, you do. I, I just mean, like, R- River Phoenix was the real deal. He was the, he was the real deal. He had a lot more to give, and... I don't know what I meant. I just, I, I don't know what I meant. I apologize to anyone who was offended by that, but um, uh, that's, just, that's just something I think. You're going to make page six for two podcasts in a row, I think. I, I, I didn't mean anything by that. I didn't, uh, whatever. I, I, I didn't mean anything by that. I did. Well, a, uh, what I think you meant, what, I, what, I, I, what I'm wondering is if you feel like, and I, actually I know you weren't slagging on Brad, who's somebody that I think the world of, um, but River was that like sort of rarest of things that show, I mean, it almost never show when it shows up, it's Brad, it becomes that thing becomes Brad Pitt or Johnny Depp or right. I mean, that's, you know, it was funny. I was in college when my own private Idaho came out and I went to go see it, um, at, at the Gramercy uh, cinema right there on sixth Avenue. And I remember being like, so proud, like, man, this guy is doing, he is doing it. My boy is doing it. He is gonna, he is gonna go all the way. And then when he was nominated for an Academy Award for running on empty, I was like, there's my boy. That's my boy. He's doing it. That's, that's my boy. Right. Represent. I mean, literally, it's like watching someone you went to high school with become a professional athlete in the Super Bowl. Yeah, he's on the highest It's just, l- it's your level. boy. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, And um, that's all I have to say. But all of us felt like that because of Chris. Because of what Chris was in Stand By Me. That's his, that was River's character. But I'm Chris, saying you... Chris Chambers. But Chris Chambers, like I remember my, my son met somebody at college and he brought that, the kid home and I was like, now that's generations, right? My boy's 19, I'm 49. Wow, you have a 19-year-old son? Yeah, and... Uh, Jesus, man, you are old with a capital O. I am an old fucking, <laughs> uh, old fucking guy. I mean, I got I married at 25. You... I got married at 25. Oh, crazy. I got married young. And... Uh, and stayed married. I'm married to my best friend, and she's the greatest. She's so she's a, cute. She, yeah, she is adorable. Oh yeah, she, you met her. She really uh, is um, uh, during the pilot. But, I met her. So the thing is, um, Sam brought this kid uh, home from college, and I looked at him. I go, "Oh, he's like Chris Chambers." Oh Jesus! And Sammy immediately said, "He is. That's exactly." Right. He was trying to describe this kid to me before bringing him home, and I said, "Because that's Chris Chambers." And he was like, "Holy shit!" He told me this. We watched. Oh, what happened was we watched this kid do a thing. We were. And it tells you about what River's like. We were standing somewhere in up where he goes to school, and there was this uh, this bu- a bus came by that had like an open back, and there were these like twenty eight year old women from the banking world having a party on this bus, and this, this like kid who's nineteen was just like 
excuse me a second. And he went out, the thing had stopped at a stoplight, and he went out walking in the middle of the street, and we just saw him look up, and two of the girls, women, leaned down, they had drinks in their hands, and they grabbed his hand, and they lifted him up onto the bus, and the bus just took off, and the kid was on the bus. There you go. And just went with them. And I was like, Chris Chambers. And he said, yeah, that's exactly what he is. <laughs> Jesus. And that's what that movie, and, you know, it stays deep inside people. It's a good um, movie. But do you, did, when you looked at, at, at all of you at that age, I'm always interested in how people grow. Like, could you, did you see the, the roots of who all of you became in, in what you were then? Like, did it surprise you the direction that Corey went in or Will went in and, no, I and mean, you? I don't know. You know, I, uh, I see everybody from time to time. You know, Will's doing his thing. He's got a show. He's got a couple TV shows that he does. And I know he does Big Bang Theory. And he's got, he's, you know, he's big into the blogging and stuff. So he does real well there. You know, Corey, he's he he does his thing. He um, uh, he he does his thing. But he's it still... seems amazing how what an echo each. It, it's a it's a weird thing from the outside. You know, there are echoes in the journey each of you took right there in the characters that you played. I mean, I I, I don't know about that. I I don't know about that. But wow, you are a real super fan of Stand by Me. You are. I a am a geeky Stand by Me fan, super of, that, fan. of that movie. Um, but when and and also, I mean, because you were in. I mean, the fact of the matter is that you were about to say on the, the podcast this week, you know, the podcast came out this week where you told this story about I did a trying podcast. to avoid Tom Cruise because of a funny or die thing that you did. And uh, it ended up in the, in the news this week. I did a couple of, I did a podcast for a couple buddies of mine. And, um, I mean, it kind of works like this. Like, you know, I, you know, um, you know, you, you emailing me, Hey, come and do the podcast. Let yeah. me know here. I'm in New York. Let's, l- let's go and do it. So I had a couple buddies who were starting a podcast and for those who don't know, I did an impression of Tom Cruise for Funny or Die. It's a little, like, you know, video. Very funny. It um, it, it got a lot of hits. And they casually asked me about it. And um, and I made a joke about... I didn't make a joke. I mean, I told a story about being at a, an event that Tom Cruise is at and me rushing to the valet to get out of there so there wasn't any confrontation. <laughs> and it... And it becomes a story. And, you know, I got to say, I was a little weirded out by that. I When I told it, I didn't intend for it to become a story like that. I just didn't. And you feel a little used in the sense that, like, you sort of go on to a buddy's podcast and it becomes like a, like, it becomes, I think they like to pit people against each other. Like, I'm pit against Tom Cruise. I, I mean... I, I'm, I'm not pit against. I think Tom you were Cruise. just telling I'm a funny even, story about. I'm not even on the man's level, like anywhere near his level. You know, I mean, I just I told a story about seeing someone. I made a joke video about and being uh, like, I gotta, I gotta. I mean, it adds insult to injury. First, you don't sign with him. And All right, that's <laughs> and first, a Jerry Maguire first, you don't sign with My him. Character after not... shaking, after your dad shook his hand and promised, right. you don't sign with the man, right. sending him off into almost a nervous breakdown and not almost not marrying Renee Zellweger. And second, right. you <clears throat> I make, uh, fun, make of fun of him and his religious beliefs. The video I was in on Funny or Die, by the way, I have to give a plug to the guy who directed it and wrote it, Jerry Minor, and another very funny director, Ryan Case, who's out there. They're very talented, very successful people. They are a part of because I, I rewatched the video. I I clicked on the I watched it this week when that story came out, and it still holds up to this day. That said, I watched it this morning. Oh my god, it it's really hilarious. holds up to this day. But um, it, it it was also a big story because last week Leah Remini was on Twenty Twenty talking about how Leah Remini escaped the Church of Scientology. And so it was a, a popular story this week. So, but it, I also think it's because of the fact that look, you were in. You've done so much stuff. You know, you've been working nonstop since you were a kid. You've been in both, you know, hugely popular things like Kangaroo Jack and hugely popular, hugely crazy. important. Well, that sh- it was a shot. I remember, like a lot of people in Hollywood thought that movie was going to be a bomb, and then it becomes this like really successful thing that people love. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Let's written by, down. I mean, it did well, a, I don't think Written by was... a billionaire. Um, of, one have, of the only we, movies we ever written, written by Bing, a billionaire. Stephen Bing. And wrote, Scotty Rosenberg, written by a billionaire Rosenberg. and a brilliant screenwriter. Um, wrote that, wrote that script. You know, it, 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 it did end up becoming a kid's film. Their first script. It, look, the, the film is great. I don't want to insult anyone. Also produced by Andrew Scheinman, um, the, the secret partner of, of, uh, of uh, Castle Rock, but um, their first script was really funny about a gangster who gets trapped in the outback of Australia. They are really good writers. 
Well, yeah, Scott's one of the great. Scott Rosie Rosie has promised. Rosie's Rosie. Rosie. He has promised to do this podcast, and he and he'll, he'll oh, send he me an email. Amazing, dude. He sends me emails and, and will call me and be like, Cobbleman, why the fuck aren't I on your fucking podcast? Why, why the fuck aren't I on your fucking podcast? Good. It's I'm not like, as good as my imitation of you, but it's, it's still not a good bad imitation. though. And uh, and I'll go, Scott, come do it. Uh, all you have to do is say the day, and I'll stop whatever I'm doing. And then he's like. I got to go to the vineyard and then I got to go back and see my mom and then I'm going to come back home and I promise. And it's like he never, it just, he doesn't show up because he doesn't want to reveal that. He's one of the great screenwriters, like, um, the best, uh, that there, you know, of uh, my whole generation of people. I have to say, Wait. this is a pretty professional outfit here. Uh, most podcasts I do, you know, no offense to other podcasts I've done. Um, it's usually like uh, recorded on an iPhone. With like not even it's not even a microphone it's just like recorded on a phone not even an iPhone well, I have the it's great, recorded on like a flip phone I, I have like the great phones. Jason DeLeon who's my producer and as I like to say uh, he's uh, ninety one and one got ninety one of them down only lost one and uh, actually lost one only one, one just one lost recording? one recording are we allowed like to say ninety one and one let me guess please tell me it was President Obama <laughs> no wait, wait please tell me it was Pope Francis when <laughs> when he came here listen ninety one and one is not bad tell like me, you'd be oh, in the God. Hall of Fame for ninety one and one. Trying to think of like someone who like passed away so like right after. It is definitely really uh, top professional sort of an operation um, <laughs> because most don't have that kind of uh, that kind of record. No, it was one of my favorite novelists. But listen, here's the point. <laughs> it was nobody. It was just one of my favorite novelists who died right listen, afterwards. San Francisco. But it. but the point is, it's okay. That's why we're a professional go, operation. Jason. But you were in. What I was saying is you were in uh, Jerry Maguire to me, and I'm wondering how it felt for you because. You know, you're joking now and smiling about the fat kid, husky kid thing. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fucking fat guy, so I can say it. But you're looking good these days. Thank you. Paleo for two weeks because I had to get this shit under control. <laughs> two weeks of paleo, paleo. eating. <laughs> paleo. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Are you telling me that, like, if, if, like, the paleo, if, like, a caveman was in here and he saw a burrito, he wouldn't eat that? Like, come on. No. What is paleo? It's just like, a way of getting the carbs out of your diet because it's either that or banging 24-ounce Cokes, Are man. you telling me that if, if, if uh, like, a caveman was walking past the donut pub on 23rd, um, I mean, on 14th, he wouldn't stop in and, and, and grab a glazed? No, that's, that's what happens. So now that's available to the caveman <laughs> and then they become, like, you know, no, you look they good. end up being... Thank you. But the... I'm going to go as far as to say... it. You look as healthy as I've ever seen you. Well, thank you. I feel I feel good today. Um, I've gotten a little <laughs> bit of rest, and I'm eating, as I said, uh, paleo, which is clearly making all the Tim Ferriss. Listen, I'm following Tim Ferriss on this stuff, and he basically says to eat this sort of paleo uh, thing. Uh, who's Tim Ferriss? I'm sorry. Right. He he's great. He wrote the the Four Hour Body, which isn't, and he's been on this show a couple times, and he's this really smart. Um, he wrote the Four Hour Work Week, Four Hour Body, uh, and. He's just a really smart guy about uh, maximizing all sorts of performance in all sorts of ways. Are you like, do you have a relationship with him where, let's say at night you're going to eat some ice cream? No, I don't. Can I you call. text? Can you text him and be like, I'm I'm going to do it. Uh, God talk me out of it. <laughs> no, but you just put the, yourself on the list. Cause you're in the freezer. I want it so bad. You want to know if he's my sponsor, my ice cream sponsor? <laughs> can you call your sponsor in the middle of the night? <laughs> Mr. O'Connell? No. No. I love talking to Jerry O'Connell. He's hilarious and smart, and we'll be back with more of his conversation, his conversation, of our conversation, with more of our conversation. We'll be back right after this. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Listen, here, here, here's, here's a question. Because I was thinking about moments, and obviously Stand By Me is this one huge thing oh, for yeah, you. Well, I, yeah, it's so funny. Well, uh, hold on, let me just interject, because I'm first time, long time. Man, I really tried to think of my moment for you. And I, I may have it. What is it? I'm going to give it to you. Go. 
And I can't believe <laughs> this is just going to be a stand by me podcast. I'm so embarrassed. I just want everyone listening to know I don't walk around talking about stand by me. I actually, I make it a point not to, cause I don't want it to be like a crutch for me. You know, I don't want it to be like, Hey, I was a kid in stand by me, but my moment is going to come on stand by me. Okay. And it is when we're filming the first day. So I told you we had done those rehearsals for two weeks, got to know each other first day on a set like with movies, right? First time on a movie set. I'd been on a commercial set. I told you my father was in advertising and I was in the background of uh, a couple of commercials. Um, actually, Dun- I, Duncan I a, Hines commercial. I had a close-up in one commercial, but yeah. Duncan um, Hines. Whatever. Duncan Hines. I was in a Duncan Hines commercial. But it was this, the first scene we shot was, for those who are fans of Stand By Me, the junkyard scene where we run away from Chopper who sicks our balls. We jump the fence and a fight breaks out between Corey Feldman's character and the man who runs the junkyard. And the man who runs the junkyard insults Corey Feldman about his father. Duchamp. Right? And Corey Feldman tries to fight him and we hold him back. So that's the first scene that we shoot. And we go through the first take and they're fighting, yelling at each other, right? And then Rob Reiner in the middle of the take goes, cut. And he comes up to me and he goes, Jerry, what, what are you doing here? And I went, me? And he went, yeah, what are you doing here? There's a fight happening here. What are you doing? And I went, well, nothing. I, I don't have a line. And he said, well, I, I don't care if you don't have a line. You're, you're as much a part of this scene as everyone who has a line. I, 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 I need you to react. To, what would you do if, if I was screaming at somebody right here and someone was screaming back at me? Wh- what would you do? And I said, well, I would, I would get involved. I would get in between them. And he went, well, you have to, you, you have to be a part. You have to listen to everything that's happening and you have to be a part of this. And I know this is like the most simplistic moment anyone's had. But anytime I walk on a set or walk on a stage or do anything, I, I, in, I just listen to everything that's happening in every scene. And even if like a plane is flying overhead when it's not supposed to, I look up at it. I just, I listen to everything because of what Rob Reiner said to me. And it like sort of, I mean, I know it's such a simplistic light bulb that goes off, but if you just listen to everything, Everything else sort of falls into place. Well, it's not simplistic. That's the moment you became an actor, <laughs> right? The I, I mean, that's the moment an actor, you became an actor. Yeah. Um, and and so from but that, that everything just... follows because you become an. I mean, that's that's sort of an artistic awakening because it probably he could have said that to a lot of people, but somehow you were ready in your life to <laughs> I mean, take that in, right, and to react to it. I mean, that's going to be the simplest, most. I mean, it's just a simple moment here on this podcast. You know, I mean. Uh, um, well, no, it ties in, you know, like one of the first questions I wrote down to, to ask you about is you're in, you're in billions. You're yeah. which is the show that, um, and listen, I listened Showtime. to Paul Giamatti on the show and I was like, how do like, I almost felt embarrassed coming in here, you know, after look, look, I mean, billions is obviously your show. You've talked about it. Paul Giamatti is, is one of the stars. So is Damian Lewis. My scenes were a lot were with both. And Damian Lewis is of course, am- amazingly talented. Go see Wolf Hall, go see billions. But, um, Man, seeing that Paul Giamatti in person is just, he's one of those, he's, he's one of those living actors right now that it's an honor, it's an honor to sit across from him. It's funny, it's, it, it might be harder from the outside to really see, but Damien is just seamless. He's such a great, he's as great an actor as you can be, meaning you, there's never a false moment. There's never a moment I don't see him as Bobby Axelrod, but, but you are right that uh, Paul is a titan. Mm. And getting to watch and be around a Titan is, um, uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I gotta tell you, it was crazy. I was with my kids the other day. Um, oh man, how do I say this without sounding rude? Um, just say it. You're on a podcast. I was with my no kids the other day and you know, I'm a good parent with my kids. We watch a tremendous amount of television. That's all we do. Um, I'm, I'm, that I'm, is, I'm that's kidding. Per- that's not a good parent. That's a perfect parent. But I believe it was Big Mama's House came on. Yeah. Was starring Martin, Martin Lawrence, Lawrence as who goes undercover as a woman. And Paul Giamatti is the bad guy in that film. And I had just finished working with him on Billions. Yeah. And it was, you know, my children love the movie. You know, there are some very funny aspects to the film. It's not necessarily my cup of tea. But getting to watch Paul Giamatti and to see him super committed and going for it in Big Mama's house, it, it was awesome. I mean, it, it, quite possibly, this is going to sound crazy, I was so inspired by watching him in Big Mama's <laughs> house not as inspired as watching him do his stuff on billions which is very inspiring but he just goes for it so prepared too man he had a bunch of monologues when i was there and he just nails them time after time after time 
I watched him like a hawk on set. I really did. To watch him prepare. Well, you watch him prepare watch, and it's amazing. You just watch guys like that. I mean, it's the same as like when I said I did that play with Alan Rickman. I just watched him like a hawk. It's just someone who you want to, em- it's someone who you want to emulate. You want to copy them. I mean, if I could be one tenth the actor of Giamatti and Rickman, I would You're, be fine. You, listen, this is what I was wanted to ask you about, which is you, I mean, there are a couple things in this time that we have remaining, but you know, when you're making a, a TV show, um, the crew sees people come in and come for a couple episodes and leave. Mm-hmm. And people who are famous come in and do guest spots, mm-hmm. right? Especially on a premium cable mm-hmm. show like this one. And, you know, you're a very famous person who you're famous. Let's say, you know, you're, you're, you're a famous person. You've been famous for a long time, right? And you're coming in to do the pilot. And on the pilot, you were doing something that really it was a one scene part. And it mm-hmm. could have been one scene and then... That that would be it, mm-hmm. and I will say, no one people didn't know. Like, oh, really? Jared Connell's going to come do this? Like, is he going to be a dick? Is it going to be? Is there going to be a lot of star stuff going on? <laughs> you know, how's he going to? He's up there, and it's really about Paul and Damien, and he's just yeah. serving a, pur- a purpose. Yeah. And dude, you you were so Joe Lunchpail. Like, you showed up. You were super prepared. You just wanted to help. No attitude. Everybody on the crew made it a point to tell me how courteous you were, how kind you were to them, how. And I'm I'm wondering. How so many actors think about their career and they're trying to plan this career. And it seems to me like you just want to do the job really well. Um, like, I'm not saying you don't think about your career, but it's like a, there's a I'll tell you, there's there's some selfishness in there. Um, I need to be affiliated. You know, you're not my world. You're uh, you're you're a boss. You're a producer. You're a writer. My world is other actors. That's my that's my level. And. I need to be with Damien Lewis and Paul Giamatti. That's that's the world I have to get into. It's tough for me to break into that world because I was the fat kid in Stand By Me. I've done a lot of network television. I didn't come up through the Royal Shakespearean Academy. I didn't. Uh, I, I I I um I didn't toil in um off off Broadway in New York for for decades. You know I'm I'm coming at it from a little more. I'm coming from it as the guy who was in Kangaroo Jack. Yeah. And it's tough. And I need the Damian Lewis's and Paul Giamatti's in my life and anything I can do to facilitate that and anything I can do to have them go, I, I like working with him. He gets it. That's my job these days. But, but a lot of people would know that and show up and be nice to those people. But be resentful of the fact, hey, I'm famous and I'm whatever, and why am I coming in to do a one day? Now, the fact that you weren't enabled us to then write really fun stuff for you to do in the second I, episode of the show. I, I, I love, I, I mean, I love being on a set. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe this goes back to Stand By. This is going to become the Stand By Me podcast. I'm so embarrassed. I just enjoy being on a set. I love... You know, when we were there that day, when we were in the studio and you were doing rewrites in one room and then we were in the other room and then, um, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, that was great. When we came and realized that the very end of a scene should be different and we asked you to do something that we hadn't planned. It was just it was just like that's what it's all about. And like the yeah. and and um, it's also uh, it's also great shooting in New York, you know, um, for a lot of years. Um, but the, I, but the, I guess what I'm asking is how do you subjugate your ego? I'm, I'm asking about. Like, ego is so the death of creative people a lot of the time. And it seems to me that you're able to subjugate your ego. That you're able, just watching you closely for these few days that we work together, I saw somebody who wanted to do really well, who wanted to make everyone around him feel good, and was able to be like, you want me to stand over there? I'll stand over there. Also, if you want a good idea, I have a good idea, and maybe I can help. I, I, have, I, I have humility. I mean, I think it's just, I think I'm just a, I'm just, there's, there's humility there. I'm a, I'm, I'm a humble person. I'm shocked I'm, I'm shocked I've come this far, to be honest with you. What do you mean? I'm just shocked. I'm shocked I've been able to string, string it out for this oh, long. Oh, to keep it going. Yeah. I so mean, you- this is crazy that I'm not... Teaching, uh, teaching drama uh, on Long Island somewhere. I uh, that now I'm I want to do your impression it. of me. Hello, I'm on Long Island. Uh, uh, I want to come to the. Uh, uh, hey, wanna... uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're no longer uh, part of Deadspin. A terrible story about that. Part <laughs> of Deadspin. Uh, I don't uh, want to talk about that anymore. Um, or Deadspin. No, uh, <laughs> that's perfect. That's I don't want to talk about Greatland anymore. Um, hey, uh, are you allowed to talk about that or no? Anything you want. I I, I want to know about what happened with that closing. I mean, what do you know? What did you hear? You know, I don't know a tremendous amount about it um were you i loved i'll say this no i wasn't surprised wow. by it 
because Bill, I, I did think that this schism between Bill and ESPN, you know, happened because they didn't understand. I mean, ultimately, it, it seems to me that ESPN didn't understand how important Bill Simmons and Grantland uh, were to them. And so it once Bill left and then um, a bunch of great people went with him and then they brought in Chris Connolly to edit, even though there were these great editors there like Dan Fearman, uh, it, 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 look, it's a big corporation that wants to protect itself. You know, I, I had a long talk with Bill before I went from Grantland to Slate and, and I will say in that was conversation, no, I went to Bill and I really asked him his permit. I wasn't going to just do, I didn't just take the podcast from, I said like, this is what I see going on. I think that it makes sense for me to do this other thing. I think I fit better at where Slate's going than where I think Grantland's going. Also, Bill, I think you're going to leave. And um, we had a long talk wherein he, uh, I think, accepted what I felt like. And he gave an interview afterwards about where, for instance, he thought Grantland, how Grantland valued podcasting. I didn't feel like they... Not how Grantland, Grantland valued it tremendously, but how ESPN didn't value it Hmm. in the way that he thought that they should. And so, look, I think it's sad because Grantland is one of the great sites of all time, an incredible collection of writers. I don't want to name any because if I I do, I'll leave somebody out. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the best collection of sports and pop culture writing that could possibly be put together. I mean, they'll all land up, they'll all... They are all. They all have... I mean, they're all getting incredible opportunities, but the fact that they were all there together was a very special thing. And, you know, to me, I just miss Bill Simmons writing. He's... I love reading. I read every word that guy writes. Right. And so... Uh, you know, he hasn't been writing and that uh, bothers me, but right. he's a very special talent and, uh, you know, is, is clearly um, whatever he's going to do next. I'm going to follow. Closely. So the moment leaving Grantland had nothing to do with it shutting down. I didn't cause the shutdown. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. But I, I want to come back to one other moment for you before we wrap up here, which is, um, you know, we joke about the Husky thing and and all that, but. Jerry Maguire was kind of, and I know you had done other things before Jerry Maguire television, but it must have felt amazing to be sort of like, uh, have transformed your body and yourself <laughs> to have grown and really become this other thing, this handsome, uh, sort of powerful, confident <laughs> version of yourself. You know, you play in that movie, you're the uh, sort of ultimate ideal. You're the thing Tom wants, you know, Jerry Maguire wants to represent. You're because and you are this, you know, uh, college quarterback, and so and I, I'm just wondering if if you knew, I'm changing the way this is it. This is going to forever change who Jerry O'Connell is. No, I didn't think of that at all. I was super Truth? excited. I was. I'm, t- I'm telling you, um, I was super excited to work with Cameron Crowe. I don't. I. I I don't think like that. And maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that's why I'm not, uh, maybe that's why I haven't hit the bi- the the big time is because I don't think of like that in terms of images or anything. I just, I really wanted to work with Cameron Crowe. That was, that was a goal. Um, but auditioning for that, did you have to audition for the movie? You know, that was interesting, the auditioning process. I was, um, I auditioned for the agent that, ironically enough, my very good friend from New Jersey, Jay Moore, Bob ended Sugar? up playing. You auditioned yeah. for Bob Sugar. And I, I got called back, I got called back, and, um, you know, I am 6'3", and 6'3", in... Hollywood is like being, it's, I'm not, I'm not even making a joke here. It's like being 6'6". I mean, am I lying? Oh. It's like being Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like people, like, I, I, I mean, it, I it's am. That's seven, he's seven feet. I, yeah. I am like, I am, I am arguably one of the tallest men in show business. Maybe David Benioff is taller. Maybe David that's... Benioff. And I, 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 I think, I think Clint Eastwood might have an inch on me. But I walked in for the final audition to play Bob Sugar. And it was immediately evident that. I was not going to be able to. Did you to. read with Tom? I, I I was in the final stages of I was in the final stages of auditioning, and it was immediately evident that this was not going to work out. Oh, you don't want to say it was Tom? I was. It was a final audition. So I'm going to just translate, as you it say, for final, the listeners. It was a that final means audition. Jerry was reading with Tom, who was not as oh tall. Oh boy! Oh boy! Just so everyone understands what that means. These these are words that you are saying. I. It was immediately. But it was apparent. immediately evident that that I was. This that, is that wasn't going to work. I was on my way out thinking, wow, that's such a bummer. I would have really liked for that to work out. 
And someone ran up and said, hey, they want you to read another part. And they gave me the sides and it was for the quarterback. I'd read the script. I was very excited about the script. And it's so funny. I thought, man, I can't play a quarterback. You know, I'm 6'3", a buck 90. You know, these quarterbacks are 6'5", 220, you know, 230. You know, I mean, if you meet like... Ben Roethlisberger, he is a he's a, mo- he's a monster. Yeah, he's a monster. You don't know it because you're watching him next to people who are 400 pounds. You think, <laughs> oh God, he's <laughs> so slight. He's such a slight man. But like Ben Roethlisberger is a monster. You know, um, uh, um, they're they're just large men. And I was like, there's, I, I can't play this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not built for this. You know. And uh, I went in. And I said, you know, I need some time with this. You know, I just, I didn't want to just go in and cold read. That means you just go in and read the lines. And uh, it worked out that I got that role. And Did um, you go back and audition for Cameron? Yeah, yeah. That right there. Oh, you mean you went in the other room, you worked on it for a couple minutes it. and came right back. Came back in. I had just done a movie with, I had just done a TV movie with Sam Elliott. And so I just did an imitation, like he was from Texas. The quarterback was from Texas. So I just did an imitation of Sam Elliott in the TV movie that I did and just sort of like... I just sort of like, just tried to keep it, you know, this is before Matthew McConaughey was <laughs> saying, all right, all right, all right, and all that sure. stuff. And I just uh, tried to keep it as much like Sam Elliott as I could. And just, I mean, I really faked my, I really faked well, my I'm not being that. funny about this, like <laughs> making the joke about Tom, uh, Tom Cruise, who, by the way, I just have to say for, for me, he's, uh, I, I got to have two meetings with him in my life. They're two of my favorite meetings I ever had. Like each one was two hours. He's, because uh, of my age, he is the movie star of my like teenage years. So he's, um, I do think the, like as a, as a, an actor and I have meeting him, loved him. You know, you're much taller than Tom though. There's no, there's nobody, there's no one who's going to say you and Tom are the same height. I mean, you're just not. Anyway, looking at that film, I looked like, I, I mean, massive. I, I, I look massive. Um, in, in a good way. But when you went back to read, were they, I just want to like, was that intimidating? Were they all there? Did like, did Tom stay for the quarterback reading too? Yeah. You know, I was saying, was everyone there. sitting there? So, like, yeah, Cameron Crowe. Just talk a little bit about what that feels like, because Cameron Crowe was well, he's one of the greatest writer directors of the era. Right. Tom, who's the biggest movie star in the right. world. I, I think this is really interesting. Walking James into Brooks that room was in the James film. Brooks, a multiple Academy Award winning producer right. and writer and director. Right. So you got Tom Cruise, James Brooks, and Cameron Crowe sitting there, and you have to come in and sort of cold read a part. What does that feel like? You know, I got to tell you. Um, when I was going to NYU and living here in New York, I did commercials for many years. And when you do commercials, um, you have about three auditions a day. So this is before cell phones. You'd go to a payphone, you'd call up your agent, and they'd say, okay, you got uh, Evian Water on 69th Street. Then you got to go downtown uh, to uh, Morton, and you got uh, bra- uh, bra- brawny paper towels, and right. then you got to go up to 17th. And you would go and you'd sit in a room and it would be the same group of guys that you just left from the audition before. You know, there's only about 20 or 30 of you in, in New York. And you'd go in and read the copy and a hundred, uh, 99% of the time you would not get it. Right. And, um, you know, 1% of the time you would, and that would be an amazing year. Like, you know, it would just be, you know, if you did three or four commercials a year, you were loaded. Well, sure. You're 21 years old. You're making real money. 21 years old. I'm living at home. I was loaded. You're loaded. And um, doing tens of thousands of commercial auditions, you get excited about walking in a room and being like, oh, I'm going to bring some stuff to this room. I'm going to. So you weren't, you were saying the fact that Tom and Brooks and and Cameron were there was exciting for you. I had done tens of thousands of auditions at that point. And there's nothing more fun than than killing it at an audition. Right. Or as your friend Um, Jay Moore says, like causing. You know, causing trouble. He liked to say you go in there and you want to cause the trouble. Yeah. Um, he, uh, uh, it's, it's, it, it was, it was fun for me, you know? And he says uh, make and, a problem. He wants, you want to make a problem for the, um, those people. and I also want to say there's also something about like if you're, I mean, auditioning or, I mean, I guess if you're not an actor, if you're, if you're going for a job interview or, or something, if you just do your thing and just kill it, even when you don't get it, which is most likely going to happen, you feel fine with it, you did, know? Did you know you killed it on that one? Was it clear when you walked out of that thing uh, that you had those people? No, I, I don't remember thinking like that. I, I don't remember thinking like that. Um, uh, no. Were those, were those two movies this sort of like so far the professional experiences that were the best for you? Um, In terms of when you were making them? Did no, you... they're the ones that people most know about, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, Jerry Maguire. Oh, yeah. Um, Stand By Me. 
Um, what was the most fun for me? Um, I guess I got to say billions. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, the boss hey. man sitting right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. No, I did a play uh, here in New York written by Teresa Rebeck. It's uh, a great, it was, by the way, I, I saw it and it's, uh, it's called semi- Seminar. Seminar, yeah. And uh, that was the best. To be in a hit Broadway show is really, is really what it's about. I mean, just How like long were you in it for? Nine months. You did Rickman. Rickman and, and I did. Um, yeah, I saw you do it with Goldblum. Right. With, with a Jeff Goldblum who, who did it. And when you're in a hit Broadway show, it's everything. It's everything. It's did, electric. And did you, now when you had to do that, when you did that show, did you do a lot of work to learn uh, about, because, you know, those jokes at the beginning about Yaddo and McDowell and right, all that right. stuff. It and I'm wondering very... if that culturally was something that you had. We, we had a lot not. of rehearsal time. There was a, there was a stage director who was, I mean, arguably number one in the world, uh, most likely number one here in New York, a guy named Sam Gold. I'm, a, I'm in the David Cromer fan Directed club. But yeah, the two, <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious. But, but um, yes, yeah, so those are the two guys for New uh, York. And so I, I was safe. I, I, I had no worries being around him. Yeah, that was a. I loved Gold. I I loved Goldblum in that show. I, I mean, this I is know gonna, it was totally different. This is but. this is going to make me sound like a real like like theater nerd, and I'm going to lose all my street cred here on on the moment. But when you're on Broadway and taking the train up to Times Square, and you're getting off of the train, and you're walking in, and they're lining up for your play, it's. I that is, this is that is moment. the experience. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the moment. I think Alan Rickman looking at you might have. I mean, when you first got, were you offered that? Was it a stone offer? No, man. I had to chase that for years. I had to audition for Teresa Rebeck for years. I tried to get in two of her productions before that one. The first time, you know, and and when you audition for a play, you memorize pages. So for weeks, I would be memorizing. I'd come in audition. I wouldn't get a callback. The next Teresa Rebeck play that came around. For weeks, I would memorize monologues, came in, came back to see me again, like second time. And then finally on seminar, I got a third call back and I was like, this is the one, this is it. This is what I'm going to get. I love that. Wait a second. This is really important because people get discouraged so quickly. And also people do get their egos involved. Like you're someone who's been working in show business successfully for a very long time. You would keep auditioning. I had to get. I had to get in. I really wanted to do a new play. I wanted In to New do, York. In New York. And I, I like Teresa Rebeck was someone that I just wanted to do. She's just, she's super funny. She's super, her plays are all new. They're all smart. They're all very New York. That play hit me. I, you have not, cause I, I, I had either just come back from Yaddo or was just going to Yaddo. <laughs> of course I you did. had. Of course so, you had. For those who don't know, <laughs> no, and they really don't know, these are writing seminars. These are writing colony, schools. Really. Colonies. No, it's not a colony. Yeah, it's an artist colony. Artist colony that we made fun of in this play seminar. Yeah. And of course, Brian attended them and knew exactly what was going on. I want to tell you something else. God, people are really turning off this podcast now. When I would do this play... It, there's a lot of sex jokes and stuff that everybody gets, but there's a few jokes about these artist colonies like Yado and everything, which super, I have it, to admit, me coming into the play, I had no idea what I was talking about. I had to be told what I was doing. That said, every time I would make these jokes about these things, usually one person in the audience, one, I'm talking, this is an audience of a thousand know, people. true. One person would go, ha <laughs> and I'd be like, oh man, that person. And we would joke backstage like, yeah, well, that person obviously like went to Yaddo and knows what we're talking about. And I would always like give my lines for that one person who was laughing. And I'm sure the night you saw it, you were that one person who laughed when I was making fun of Yaddo. I Hilarious. was. I know that I was. Hilarious. I howled. I was sitting there with my wife who's a novelist too. <laughs> and because those two places are, like Yaddo is not just an artist. It's like... uh you know, it's the most rarefied, impossible, like, you know, it's to be a Yaddo, a fellow, like, who gets to go there. It's an amazing, like, honor and thing, but it's also the most protect, like, there's nothing, like, I must tell you, like, uh, I don't, I don't think I've ever mentioned Yaddo on the podcast. <laughs> of course, why would you? This is you, the audience. Who, what do they want to hear about Yaddo for? You can't possibly. And uh, I remember just falling out of my seat at the show, show like, smacking Amy on the arm, so funny. And yeah, I, I wish I would have also really funny. S- seen it with, with Rickman, but I, 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 I mean, I don't want to name drop. I, I do not want to name drop, but John, Ho- John Hodgman. I mean, that's, yeah, you can't do John, better than that. John Hodgman came to the show and he came backstage. John Hodgman, a famous daily show, very funny writer, very still funny still right, b- back writing for the Times Magazine again, too. Uh, 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 just a great writer, very funny. His character on the daily show was the funniest. Oh, and he's the PC in the Mac PC commercials. Correct. He was the PC, if people don't n- know. Correct. But um, 
he is someone who came up to me and went, oh, man, that, that Yato joke. Oh, is that really, true? That really made me laugh. So there you go. You <laughs> so you get that once in a while. You get the well, Yato joke. John Hodgson right there for you. Listen, Jerry, I got to say, man, I've been a fan of yours for such a long time. You're the best, buddy. And it's such a blast to have you on the show. And um, your impression of me is really like gold. I'm going to get Please, it on a uh, loop. Send all scripts. Uh, send all scripts to uh, compliment. Here, here, my email address is uh, themomentbk at gmail.com, but go ahead. What... <laughs> um, please uh, please do not submit any scripts. I will not be reading them. Uh, please, I, I know, uh, I, yes, I talk about it. I want to encourage you. You can drop me a line. I will answer any questions. I just will not read any material. Uh, this podcast is no longer on Grantland. Uh, it is now here at Slate, the lovely people at Slate. We had a lot of fun at Grantland. They were very fun people with great experience. Nothing, no ill will toward any of those people. Uh, the comp- but the company is no more. Everyone has been fired. It's no, it's not there. The building is empty. So now we're here at Slate. Okay. Ah. Baba Bowie. <laughs> you can find Jerry uh, on Twitter at Jerry O'Connell. Yeah. I'm uh, at Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next time. Bye.